And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is Inflation Day. And that's right, we get the inflation report out this morning. You know, this is the, the big question. You know, we're going to see an uptick in inflation. Is it going to go lower? Of course, markets will all be kind of keying off that this morning. Now, yesterday's market, you know, rallied here a bit. And again, we're just kind of still within that consolidation range for the year. But, you know, this is going to be one of the big drivers that we've talked about here recently is looking at the CPI report because that's going to be what keys the Fed. You know, very interestingly, yesterday I was doing a interview on Fox Business with Charles Payne in the afternoon and right before me was Naomi Prince. And she's talking about the fact that the Fed is already slated to start ending QT by May. So in other words, starting in May, the Fed will start reducing the runoff on their balance sheet, reducing that rate of quantitative tightening. And it's now expected that the Fed will restart quantitative easing, which is now increasing the balance sheet by the third quarter. So again, you know, this is all very, you know, very interesting given the year that really, you know, there's no sign of a recession right now. Everything seems to be okay. Yes, we've got some weakening economic data, but nothing at this point that suggests that the economy is about to fall off a cliff, yet we've got the Federal Reserve talking about cutting rates and now potentially doing QE by the third quarter. Of course, this is an election year, by the way. But outside of that, you've kind of got to ask yourself the question is why? Right. If everything's OK, why do I need to be cutting rates and doing QE? You know, this is this is going to be the big the big thing. And Mike and I are going to talk about that this morning uh, on the show. But it is interesting, you know, talking about bonds in particular um, in, you know, in 2022, the 60-40 index. Right. So in 2022, bonds had one of their worst returns on record going back to like 1787. And, of course, that really weighed on the 60-40 return. And remember, there was just a ton of articles and, and headline, media talk, etc., about how the 60-40 allocation was dead and you should no longer want to have bonds in your portfolio. It's just going to be the end of the world. And then 2023, the 60-40 allocation turned in one of its best returns since the turn of the century. You know, and it actually, on a macro, on, on a sharp, you know, a sharp ratio adjusted basis, outperformed many other types of allocation strategies and portfolios, uh, you know, kind of really all across the board, macro, uh, macro growth, et cetera. So, you know, it was very interesting to see this big turn. Of course, this is what happens in the media. And again, this is why we always warn you about paying attention to the media and listening to all this kind of, you know, news talk that goes on. Because again, a lot of these headlines are get you to watch, to get views, right? So the more bearish they are, the more bombastic they are, et cetera, it tends to get views, but this is also why, <laughs> you know, the media has the least amount of trust on record. Uh, going back to the Nixon administration, uh, where there was a very high level of trust in the media, there is now some of the lowest levels of trust in the media. Of course, when you, you know, don't really give people the truth, they tend to figure it out on their own. But this is why we tell you to really be careful about what you consume in terms of the media. Because, again, you know, a lot of these opinions and things are just that. First of all, they're just opinions. A lot of it's not based on factual information. And most importantly, they're designed to get you 
to, to, to give views, right? They want you to watch it. They want you to click on it. And, and particularly today, more than anything else, because, you know, we have, you know, everything is now a subscription, right? So in order to get subscribers, get people to actually pay for stuff, you've got to really get the information out there that's going to get people to click. You know, you got to have the most bombastic headlines possible in order to get people to click that and then to subscribe for a month or two or whatever to read the articles. And this is just the world that we live in today. So just the, the point here is, is be extremely careful about what you consume because that impacts your emotional state. And then that makes that leads us to making decisions that typically don't work out for us long term. And again, a good, good example of that was in 2022. Everybody was like, ah, get out of bonds. Bonds are terrible. And then they have a really good return year the next year. But that's what often happens. You know what? And the, we've talked about this before. If you take a look at what's the best performer one year, it tends to be the worst performer the next year because things rotate in the markets. Things change. And, and as we look forward uh, to this year, things are certainly going to change. Let's talk about earnings here real quick because we're also about to start earnings season. But let, before that, um, let's talk about what you need to know before the bell this morning. So we are about to start earnings season uh, next week. We're going to start getting earnings reports for quarter four. Now, quarter four earnings had the sharpest reduction in earnings estimates that we've seen on, on, in quite some time. There's a very, very sharp drop. Almost $8 a share in estimates was the decline in just the month of December. So a very, very sharp decline. And so that's lowered that bar a lot for companies to beat estimates. Interestingly enough, as we look at where the earnings are expected to come from, the vast majority of earnings growth is coming from the top 10 stocks in the index, basically technology. So, you know, if you take a look at where the growth of earnings are going to come from, yes, we're expecting earnings to grow this year, but primarily dominated by the health, by the technology sector, also some out of healthcare, but mostly technology. So, Again, the markets here so far trading sideways haven't gone anywhere. Now, yesterday we actually attempted to, to touch the recent highs in the market from December, rolled off of that right, right to the end of the day, but you know, finished close to that level. Um, we're looking to set up this morning a little bit to the upside. Um, we're up about four points on the S&P. Again, everything's going to hinge right now on the CPI report this morning. If it comes in a lot hotter than expected, markets are going to sell off a bit because, again, this is going to start to spark concerns about, well, maybe the Fed is going to have to kind of walk back some of their bullish statements. You know, maybe the Fed will have to remain higher for longer because we're seeing inflation tick back up. If inflation comes in in line or lower than expected, markets are going to rally, potentially set a new high today. So, again, that's going to be really kind of the driver of, of the markets today more than anything else is going to be the CPI report this morning and then what that potentially alludes to relative to what the Fed is going to be doing. And again, this is, this is one of the problems of the markets that we have now is that we no longer really operate on fundamentals. It's all about what's the Fed going to do. Is the Fed going to hike rates? Are they going to lower rates? Are they going to stay higher for longer? Uh, it's just the market we're in. We've got to deal with it for right now. But again, the markets here are doing absolutely fine. As we noted yesterday, we're staying right above the 20-day moving average. That 20-day moving average is on the rise. That's keeping stocks elevated. We're still in a bullish trend at this point. But again, there's certainly some risk here. We're still on a sell signal, still fairly elevated. So again, upside is probably somewhat limited at this point. But you know, there's still the potential here for the markets to, to kind of gyrate here a, a bit more. Uh, that's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Um, when we come back, you know, like I said, I want to talk a little bit more with Mike about 
the Fed's outlook, particularly QE versus QT, and because this is going to be a big issue for the markets. There's certainly some things going on in the backgrounds. As we touched on last week, we're seeing reverse repo operations. We're seeing those overnight lending rates pop up here. There certainly seems that there might be some stresses within the financial system. Maybe that's an explanation for why the Federal Reserve is kind of backing off a bit here. We'll find out. I don't know, but the other big uh, thing is gonna be driving the markets here over the next few weeks, again, is gonna be earnings. Um, as we, you know, again, it doesn't matter that earnings estimates have declined. It's that typical end of the year, you know, kind of earnings season, you know, if we're gonna beat estimates or not, that's gonna be really driving stocks. Again, that's gonna be one of the catalysts here, at least in the short term, to give stocks a, a bit of support is gonna be whether or not uh, they can beat these estimates. But the important thing to be paying attention to is gonna be their outlook. CEO confidence has been dropping sharply. We're starting to see impacts in the employment market. So the outlook is gonna be the thing that we're looking for the most in terms of what our outlook for the rest of this year is gonna be like. So quick break, we'll come back and we'll pick up with Michael Leibowitz. Lots of stuff to get into this morning, so hang around. Make sure you get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com and get your tickets for the upcoming event. Michael will be there uh, to uh, talk all about bonds and markets and more on January the 27th. Link's on the website now. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So uh, some big news yesterday and uh, something I'll get uh, Mike's uh, comments on here uh, before we get into the inflation piece was that the SEC has basically now approved the Bitcoin ETFs. And there's like 12 ETFs that are all launching today. So, you know, and, and this is always going to be interesting, right? Because the, these are Bitcoin, these are spot Bitcoin ETFs. So it's actually going to price off the, 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 the price of Bitcoin. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this works out. Uh, but again, so there's 12 ETFs that are coming out today. Invesco, BlackRock, all the usual names are, are you know, coming to market with their, you know, uh, brand of ETF. And already, and these 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 ETFs haven't even launched yet, and there's already a price war between how much to charge <laughs> for these ETFs. Um, so you know, it's going to be interesting to see you know what the actual cost of these ETFs are, but they're all basically a quarter point or less. So they're they're very cheap um, right now to own. So if you want to own you know Bitcoin, but not actually own the Bitcoin itself, uh, you'll now be able to buy buy and trade an ETF. So. You know, it does have some benefits from that if, if you're into the cryptocurrency thing. I did find this one statement from the SEC. Uh, this was actually in their announcement yesterday. So they, they issued the statement. And in the middle of the statement, uh, as such, in contrast to previous proposals based on the record before the commission, um, the commission is able to conclude that fraud or manipulation that impacts prices in spot Bitcoin markets will likely similarly impact CME Bitcoin future prices. <laughs> so basically you're buying an ETF that's subject to fraud and manipulation. <laughs> Great. And I thought the SEC's job was to protect, you know, when we established the SEC back in 1933, 1934, um, you know, the whole purpose of establishing that 
was this was following the crash uh, following 1929 because from 1920 to 1929, the banks were issuing IPOs for Wall Street and then loaning money to their clients to buy the IPOs. So there was this circular loop between the banks. So the banks would just issue more and more IPOs and then loan, and then basically tell all their clients, oh, you need to buy this IPO that we just issued, and here's we'll loan you money to do it. That was kind of the origination of margin. And, of course, when it all blew up, we said, well, we can't have that happen anymore. We have to separate the banking and Wall Street. And so we established the Securities and Exchange Act in 1933 and then funded it with people in 1934. And the whole purpose of that was to protect investors from predatory practices. Now the SEC just says, hey, well, there's fraud manipulation, but hey, it's all on you. Go buy it. (laughs) So anyway, you'll have lots to choose from today. Lots of Bitcoin ETFs launching at the open. Uh, Mike, what are your thoughts? Can I I throw my two cents? Yeah, yeah. You can throw your two Bitcoins in, sure. (laughs) So I thought thought most people own, everyone owns Bitcoin because they think it's going to go up. Let's just be honest. But- the, a, a large number of people, the rationale is because they want something outside of the financial system. They want to own wealth that's protected from the financial system. Yeah, not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Now it's like any other asset yeah. if, if you buy the ETF version. So it'll be interesting to see what percentage of bit, like if we come back a year from now, what percentage of Bitcoin is owned by the ETFs? Versus owned by non-ETF well, players. Well, that, that I was actually, I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually where I was going to go to here. Because, so there is a finite amount of Bitcoin. And again, we're just talking about Bitcoin right now, okay? We're not talking about Ether. We're not talking about Doji or any, anything else, right? We're just talking about Bitcoin for the moment um, because these are all Bitcoin ETFs. Um, so that is the question. There is a finite amount of Bitcoin and you've got iShares, Vanek, Franklin, Fidelity, Valkyrie, Wisdom Tree, Invesco, Bitwise, Grayscale, and Arc, all launching a, a, an ETF today. The question is, is how are they going to back this up? Because again, if I if there's only a finite amount of Bitcoin, then I've got to be able to buy that Bitcoin with the money that I have. And as I get new fund flows coming in, I have to buy more Bitcoin. So at some point, you know, you know, there 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 runs the risk of there just not being a Bitcoin available. You know, to 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 buy. So it's going to be interesting to see how this gets worked out. Because well, they can't they can't issue more is, Bitcoin, right? I mean, it, you can't just print Bitcoin. Well, you well you manufacture you mine them, right? So you right, create these but, massive algorithms that create Bitcoin. Right, no, no, and no, I think yeah, for, right, right. But hold on, yes, you can mine it, but there is a finite amount of Bitcoin no, that. that you can mine, right? But, so at some point, you're going to mine all the Bitcoin there is to mine. But I think with each Bitcoin that is mined, that algorithm becomes harder and harder and more expensive to create. So I wonder if by the time you get to that, what is it, 24 million? I forgot the number of Bitcoin that will ultimately be created Mm -hmm. if it's almost impossible to create it. Yeah. So the cost of creating new Bitcoin just makes it that people stop mining it and that the price of Bitcoin then fluctuates completely with supply and demand and there's no new supply. Well, that's exactly what's going to happen at some point. So, right. so the more that you pile into this, I guess this, either way, right? Whether right. So the more you pile into twenty-four million, it's a finite, right? And and they're not mining, and these ETFs are not mining the ETF uh, or mining the Bitcoin either, right? So you know there are there are companies out there 
that are strict miners and and you can right. invest in you know those companies that you know mine bitcoin etfs aren't doing it they're just buying off what's available in the market on, on a on a on a you know on an option basis so you know i again i i don't know how the inner workings of this is going to work it's working off cme spot prices but it's going to be interesting to see how that supply demand imbalance works out right. and and I'm, I I'm presuming these guys are smart the enough CM they've already figured this out so you know it's beyond me but you know we'll see are cme spot prices the same as bitcoin yeah. spot prices it should be it should reflect the i mean this is the whole point right the, the, the yep. problem with Grayscale was is that with their, with their, th there's been a Bitcoin ETF out for a while, but it was not based off spot prices. So it didn't really track the price of Bitcoin, which was the frustration, right? So Bitcoin's going up and down in price, and there wasn't a, there wasn't a good vehicle to track that increase or decrease in the price of Bitcoin. So the whole point of this was to get a, a product that would actually trade off the price of Bitcoin. Right. Just, just so, like just like gold ETFs trade off the spot price of gold. Right. So there's also MicroStrategy. That's a technology company. They're actually here in my backyard. They're in Virginia and they own a ton mm -hmm. of Bitcoin. Bitcoin. And that's sort of their business plan. Uh, so the question is, why would why would anyone own that anymore either? You can just buy buy it buy Bitcoin via an ETF. Yeah. No, well, but but again, their strategy is, is that so. MicroStrategy is a great example, right? They own a lot of Bitcoin that they're not going to release, right? They're going to hold that Bitcoin because that's their business plan. They've actually issued out debt to buy Bitcoin because their long-term belief is, is that Bitcoin's going to go to, you know, $100,000 in price. And, and this is one of those catalysts that may actually create that environment, right? This, and I was getting to this point, which is you're creating a lot of demand, in a limited supply market, which is going to drive prices higher. So for MicroStrategy, this is actually great for them if they hold on to that limited supply of Bitcoin and you have a lot of demand for these ETFs, there's the potential that they're going to make a lot of money on this on the other side as Bitcoin rises because of this demand driven, uh, you know, brought in by these ETFs. Right. That's a good point. And I guess... You know, we, we should be looking at divergences between MicroStrategy's market cap and their the value of their Bitcoin holdings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's it's the, almost like a closed end fund in a way. Exactly. So you know, again, it, and again, you know, that was the other frustration. A lot of people were buying MicroStrategy as a good example uh, to get access to, e to basically get access to Bitcoin without actually having to own Bitcoin, right? right. So, but it didn't track the price of Bitcoin. You know exactly. So it's it, it, it goes up with Bitcoin, but it doesn't track it, you know, to the penny. So this is this and is the hope of this, and it's going to be very interesting to see how this impacts both the trading in Bitcoin, but ultimately they resolve this supply demand imbalance. But you've also made Bitcoin a lot easier to trade, mm -hmm. and you've also made it so you don't have to worry about security. And now you've brought in people that don't care about the the value of Bitcoin as, you know, financial, the financial aspects of it, they just care purely about the trading. Mm -hmm. So you've probably created a more volatile Bitcoin as well in the process. Yeah, that's, well, and this is the whole point of what we'll see, right? So, mm -hmm. and again, once you launch ETFs, at some point, um, you're going to launch options on ETFs, uh, launch options on these ETFs. So <laughs> it's just going to add another layer 
of you know volatility potentially to the market. It's going to be very fascinating to see. But you know, a big news yesterday on this, and and again, I have no idea how this is going to eventually work out. I own some Bitcoin, so you know, we'll see um, what happens. But you know, this is this is this is big news for the industry. So. Um, again, we'll see how this all works out and plays out, but it's going to be really interesting to watch. And, and again, you know, this is going to be, you know, for a lot of people that want to own Bitcoin, but you didn't want to go set up a wallet and have to deal with, you know, all the nuances of, of buying Bitcoin on, you know, some off exchange, you'll now be able to buy an ETF and throw it in your Fidelity account. So, right. And money managers like us can now buy it mm-hmm. without having to change anything in our systems, our custodial services. It just yep. would flow right in like yep. like buying IBM or Apple. Yeah, it's going to provide again. This is this is the whole point. It's going to provide a lot of demand for Bitcoin because it's now very easy to acquire it. So uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. So but so like I said, I, I'm sure we're about to see all the laser eyes come back to the Twitter feed. <laughs> so they disappeared temporarily. All the laser eyes are coming back. So, all right, uh, quick break. We'll come back. Inflation uh, out this morning. Uh, let's talk. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about um, the Fed's QT, QE, cutting rates, all that um, as we start to look forward into 2024. Don't go away. Life is an illusion. Can't you see that love is everywhere? Step into the confusion. Can't you hear the sound that's in the air? investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com looking for clarity for your investments in the new year you must attend our 2024 economic summit navigating markets in a presidential cycle featuring greg valier trump will be a big presence the bigger story in my opinion is how weak joe biden is going to be is the Fed finished tightening? Liquidity, I think, is underestimated. Will rates ease this summer? States are still flush with cash. They haven't spent all their money from the pandemic relief bill. How will the election affect your investments? I don't see any political figure right now who can bring the country conclusively back together again. Register now for our 2024 Economic Summit, Navigating Markets in a Presidential Cycle, featuring Greg Valier with special guest Adam Taggart, plus Michael Lebowitz and Lance Roberts, Saturday, January 20th. 27th at the Hotel Celeste Houston. Navigating markets in a presidential cycle. Featuring Greg Valier. Saturday, January 27th at the Hotel Celeste Houston. Registration open now at realinvestmentadvice.com. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Welcome back this morning. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we were just talking uh, before the break a little about uh, the approval of these Bitcoin ETFs. I just uh, kind of glanced over here a second ago. And Bitcoin's trading up about 2% uh, this morning. So, again, so it's around 47000 uh, Still well below the $60,000 um, price that it, that it previously traded at. And, of course, we had that huge correction uh, down towards 16000 So it's been climbing its way back. It's been a good return here. 
uh, from those lows over the past few months. But you would you would kind of think, and and I was a little bit surprised. I was just saying a little bit surprised. You know, with the approval of these Bitcoin ETFs, I would have expected Bitcoin to be up you know 10, 15, 20 percent this morning. But again, uh, maybe all of this was already kind of priced in. You know, kind of heading into this announcement. Um, you know, we'll see. But anyway, uh, I digress. Um, so a little bit about, um, you know, this morning we've got CPI coming out. Big question is, is, you know, is it going to show an uptick again? Is it going to go down lower? You know, what is it? Uh, you know, lots of uh, comparisons back to the 1970s when inflation came down and then it resurged again. And there was this big pickup in inflation. And, uh, you know, if, if there's a lot of individuals that are convinced that that's going to be the next leg here, right? So we're going to have this next big pickup in inflation um, right now, we really haven't seen that so far. Inflation's been kind of just moderating lower back towards, you know, what the economy can generate around 2%. The economy uh, for the fourth quarter is expected to come in at about 2%. That's going to put us at about 2 2.5% for all of last year. So inflation should theoretically trade around that economic rate of growth. But, uh, you know, again, we're right now around 3% as of the last report. Question this morning is, is what will we see? And then more importantly, um, What's will this report, if anything, change anything about what the Fed's doing? Uh, and that's the big question here. So, Mike, uh, what do you kind of think about inflation this morning? Well, let's kind of remember where we've been recently, because the the number is still three percent year over year. And that's a big number, right, compared to what the two percent the Fed wants, much lower than where it's been eight or nine percent. But the prior two months, it was a tenth of a percent, and the month before that, half of a tenth of a percent. Um, so they're expecting two tenths of a, a percent today. So if we just look at the localized inflation, what's inflation been running if we annualize it now? It's somewhere between one and one and a half percent inflation, mm -hmm. right? Inflation has largely been slayed for the time being, right? Who knows what the future holds? But but the the kind of the the more short term rate of inflation is where the Fed wants it to be, if not maybe even a little lower. The next, if you go back a year ago, we were looking at half a percent or so inflation a month, which gets you to roughly six percent a year. So once we start, you know, assuming we continue at two tenths of a percent, three tenths, one tenth, we're going to be back to two percent once we get some of those old numbers out of the annual calculations. But again, what we care about is the trend, not where it was a year ago. So, you know, we're going to look at today's numbers and see what they did, recognize that now we're now entering seasonal aspects that that like all data in you know December and even back in November, the data gets a little squirrely because our consumption habits change, businesses operate a little differently. Obviously, the holidays have a big impact on things. But the expectation is two tenths of a percent. That's, you know, that's what, 2.4 percent inflation if you annualize that. And again, much less if you look at the, the three, the rolling three months. Uh, but again, Lance, I think the biggest factor is going to be housing costs. Uh, you know, roughly 40 percent of the number is rents and implied imputed rents uh, based on house prices. And the the BLS data or the BLS calculations greatly lag what's happened in the economy. So there's still that the BLS data is still due for a big drop off in house and rent prices. Rent prices have been running flat. House prices have been upticking lately a little bit. 
but but the data that BLS is using is still much higher housing inflation than what we've seen for the last six months or so. So so the wild card is what happens with shelter prices. And and again, and, uh, and this is kind of the interesting thing is that um, housing prices are expected to increase about three percent this year, um, and it will likely be more than that if the Fed does start cutting rates, right? So if we continue to see, if we do see the Fed cut rates, that's going to drag in the long, drag down the longer end of the of the of the yield curve, and that's going to push you know shelter costs up even more. I guess that you know the one you know, kind of interesting point is that we have a record amount of multifamily apartments being built and uh, rents mm-hmm. have been under pressure. So if we take a look, you know, again, we're not talking about just home prices when we talk about homeowners equivalent rent it kind of factors in a lot of different things. But, you know, you are seeing rents coming down because of this massive oversupply of multifamily properties. And, and I think there's going to be a real opportunity, you know, probably in the fu- not not far too distant future for somebody looking to get into the multifamily apartment business because you'll be able to buy stuff really, really cheap. <laughs> but, you know, we're not there yet. But again, there is going to be this kind of interesting knockoff between the decline in rents because of an oversupply of multifamily properties and the increase in home prices due to declining mortgage rates. If the Fed cuts right. rates, right? And what's kind of silly when, you, you know, you put it in that perspective, the Fed is running monetary policy based on inflation data that is, you know, significantly on housing. And yes, interest rates greatly affect housing, but there's so many other factors, Mm -hmm. demographic and others. So, you know, it helps explain why the Fed does is not great at managing inflation because a lot of it is out of their hands. Right. This house, there's a house, right? Like you said, this boom in construction for residential properties is crazy. And at the same time, office space, they can't give it away anymore. <laughs> there is so much vacant, vacant property in, in office properties. Mm-hmm. Buildings are selling in a commentary from, I think, a day or two ago. We showed a piece that's literally a block around the corner from me that sold for one hundred thirty million in 2018. It just sold for 30 million. Right. And a coveted area on top of a subway station. So, you know, it, it's weird to look at this economy and see that they can't build enough uh, enough apartment buildings, condos. And at the same time, they have all these other buildings that are just sitting vacant. Uh, and the Fed is trying to steer policy based around the inflation that comes off of those right. residential properties. Right. And again, you know, it's, and, and I guess, you know, what my point is, is that, you know, the Fed's actions can act against them in terms of bringing down inflation. Oh, we think inflation's under control. We're at three. We think we're heading towards two. And then they cut rates, which boost, you know, uh, the very thing that drives over 30, you know, well over 35% of the CPI index, which is housing prices. So all of a sudden you start boosting housing prices again because you cut mortgage rates. And there's there's a lot of pent-up demand right now that people want to buy a house they just don't want to they just don't want to pay a 7% mortgage or they can't afford the monthly right. payment at 7% but they can afford the monthly payment at 4. So all of a sudden you start bringing mortgage rates down, housing prices go up, you start getting another influx of inflation and the biggest component of the CPI index which you know right. the other factors may not be able to offset. And this gets back to what we've been talking about, what is the Fed doing? Right. What are they thinking? Right. They, they they studied the 70s so much. And if you look at the 70s, you know that there were waves of inflation 
And a lot of it is due to Fed error. A lot of it was due to the mistakes the Fed made. So if you're the Fed right now, you know, I get why you want to lower rates, but just slow your pace down. <laughs> the last thing you need is for, for inflation to peak back up again mm -hmm. and scare scare the economy, scare the banks, scare that most importantly, scare the bond markets. Yeah. Because if you get another run in yields back up above where we were or even higher, the risk of a crisis, which is probably still existing, especially for the banks, increases substantially. Well, and it's an interesting point that you make about the 70s, because, you know, there wasn't just one spike in inflation. We all remember the late 70s. And actually, we talk about the 70s, right? But actually, we had inflation running in bouts from the 1960s and into the 1970s. It was just right. that last spike during the oil embargo that we all remember. But to your point, uh, we had this continual kind of you know trending a rise in inflation that was going along with significantly stronger economic growth because we were doing a lot of manufacturing back then. But to your point, the Fed would, you know, would hike rates, inflation would come down, then they would start cutting rates and inflation would go back up again. And then so they would hike rates. And then once inflation started to come down, they would cut rates and inflation would go back up again. And so it seems to your point that they might actually be walking to exactly that same trap. Oh, I think inflation's coming down. We cut rates. We spark another you know, push within the economy of increasing demand. And we already, we're already going to see an, an increase in economic activity because of the, 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 the loosening of financial conditions. Lower yields, higher stock prices, boost consumer confidence. People go out and they buy stuff. You're going to get this is why you're getting, you know, 4.9% GDP growth in the third quarter, 2% growth in the fourth quarter. Uh, we continue to see, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, activity continuing, despite the fact we all keep expecting a recession to occur, and it just doesn't occur. And we have all this money in the system. So, you know, the Fed's very much, you know, potentially putting themselves up to be in that same position where they cut rates and they spark a lot of demand within the economy, rising asset prices. All of a sudden, they got inflation coming back. When we come back from the break, we'll uh, pick up with Michael Leibowitz, talk about QTQE, because now the Fed's even talking about stopping QT starting in May. Talk about that right after the break. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, quick uh, administrative message here. Monday and Tuesday, we are not sure that we're going to be able to broadcast a show depending on this freeze that's coming in. If it's if it's a if it's a dry freeze, just cold weather, there's no problem. But 
um, if it turns out to be a, a wet, icy one, we're probably not going to be able to get into the studio. And, and plus, the building that we're in, that our studio is in, has a propensity to lose power uh, <laughs> during ice storms. So um, we may be here. Um, if not, we will have some content for you regardless on Monday and Tuesday. Um, but just be aware that we don't know uh, what this is going to be like uh, come Monday and Tuesday. But we'll, we'll certainly be updating our blogs and updating our daily commentary and uh, answering questions on our website. So if for any reason we can't get in here to do a show and you've got a question, just get by the website, email us. Um, always happy to help you. Um, OK, so having having said that, um, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, so just talking a little bit uh, before the break about the Fed, um, you know, talking about rate cuts this year, but yet we still have this potential risk of inflation. And at the same time, they're now talking about cutting rates. It's now becoming a, a much broader expectation by the markets that the Fed is not only going to cut rates this year, but they will start reversing quantitative tightening starting in May. So, you know, what we've seen over the last year or so, is the Fed allowing their balance sheet to roll off? So they haven't been actively selling bonds in the markets. They just have been letting mature, you know, bonds mature, and they just weren't replacing them. And that's been reducing the balance sheet. Um, but that's even now expected to come to an end starting in May. So in, in May they'll start tapering their their rate of QE back towards zero, and it's even expected that by the third or fourth quarter of this year, potentially as early as the third quarter that the Fed will start quantitative easing again. In other words, buying bonds to uh, put bonds back on their balance sheet. And, of course, as we've done the analysis before, there's a very high correlation between quantitative easing and market outcomes. Just saying. So, <laughs> But, uh, Mike, you know, what, you know, this is it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, you know, if we take a look around, you know, the market, markets are doing fine. Um, we had a 15% rate of return the last two months of the year. So nothing wrong with the markets right now. You know, the economy's doing okay. Um, sure, employment, employment is uh, starting to show some signs of weakness, but nothing extreme. Uh, unemployment claims remain very low, historically low. Um, but yet we now have the Fed kind of going into seems what seems to be what's more akin to crisis management, what we've seen in the past of them taking actions that are normally associated with something breaking in the financial markets, but yet there seems to be nothing really wrong here. So, you know, is the Fed making a, a mistake? I don't know, but I think what concerns them is the, the Fed's repo program. So the Fed basically has a program where they take money in, excess liquidity from the markets, from the banks, from money market funds, funds from a bunch of other institutional investors. And that reverse repo program got as high as I think like 2.4 trillion at one point. It's now been steadily declining. It sits around five or 600 billion. It'll be gone at this rate by March, give or take a little. What that repo program represents is excess liquidity. Once that repo is, program is gone, in the Fed's mind, most likely, they think that liquidity is back to normal. Every day after that, liquidity is actually sub what they think it should be. So that's why I think that they are starting to talk about reducing tapering QT. Um, I think we're way too early for QE, but but I think they realize that maybe what happened, we've talked about what happened in 2019 
that there was a liquidity problem. Maybe what they're thinking is that that liquidity problem is finally resurfacing four years later, that it was kind of put on hold because of actions the Fed took in 2019 and especially the actions they took for COVID, for the pandemic. So their concern may be a replay of what was beginning to play out in 2019. And that would help explain why they would want to stop uh, QT and potentially at some point do QE. It would also explain why they want to lower interest rates despite inflation coming down significantly, but not being fully back at their level. So, you know, it's hard to, it's really hard to fathom what the Fed is thinking right now through 2020, 2022, Powell harkened back to the 1970s nonstop. They clearly did their homework on the 70s. They, they saw all the mistakes the Fed made, all the mistakes the government made, the, the behaviors of human beings and how they react to inflation. And Jerome Powell was constantly quoting things like price wage spiral. They don't want inflation to get into the mindset of people because then they their behavior, their consumption behaviors change. And clearly that they recognize that the risk of reigniting inflation with bonehead policies is, is a real possibility. So, you know, it's hard to fathom if they really think that a potential liquidity risk is a huge problem uh, big enough to offset the potential for another round of inflation. It's a really interesting dichotomy of potential problems right here. Yeah. And and again, you know, know, when you take a look at again, there's there's a lot of. You know, arguments for both sides, right? You take a look at leading economic indicators, they're negative. Take a look at uh, ISM manufacturing, it's recessionary. Take a look at yield curve inversions, uh, clearly recessionary. You know, we've got a lot of indicators that suggest that a recession's coming, yet you take a look at the actual economic data itself, and there's really no sign of that at the moment. Um, you know, so, you know, it's, you know, if I'm the Fed, I'm looking at this kind of conflicting set of data and, you know, I'm making a bet almost that, you know, there's there's a and again, you know, I, you have to this is just from the, the 30,000 foot view is that, you know, there's something wrong within the overall economy that, you know, I've got to start backing off these this tighter policy. Otherwise, I'm going to create a hard landing within the economy. So that's what that's what the view looks like. But, you know, to your point with reverse repo and, and kind of what's going on there. Um, you know, does the Fed see something that's more immediate that's happening within the, uh, the kind of the underbelly of the of the financial system that is more worrisome than just kind of broad macroeconomic data? You know, because right. again, you take a look at CPI or employment, there's no reason to rush into doing anything. But it feels like the Fed's taking a more aggressive push as if there's something actually fragile within the system. Right. And they've completely gone back on what they said back from October, or November. That, you know, they said that higher interest rates, lower stock prices were tightening financial standards. That was great because it was doing their job for them. That's completely not the case anymore. Financial financial uh, conditions have eased at a quicker pace than any other time in history over the last couple months. And the Fed is not saying anything about that. They're not they're not reversing their stance. And even the most hawkish of the Fed members 
it's becoming dovish. No one expects a rate hike anymore. Rate hike was the, the market was pricing in, you know, anywhere from 20 to 40 percent chance of a rate hike throughout most of the last quarter. And now there's almost zero percent chance of a rate hike. And the, the only question in a market's mind is, will the Fed cut as early as March? Right. And you just don't see on the economy, you just don't see it, right? You know, you can point to the employment numbers and there were some concerning parts of it. But at the end of the day, I think this is a financial markets, a credit, a liquidity issue that's brewing and that's being brought to the Fed's attention and that they are concerned it gets potentially yeah. out of control. You know, and again, it just, and Mike, you know, I've talked about this before, but this reminds me so much of 2018, where in September of 2018, the Fed's hiking rates were nowhere near the neutral rate by December. They hadn't hiked rates anymore, but they completely reversed their stance. Oh, we're, we're at the neutral rate. Everything's fine. Uh, market starts taking off in July. They start cutting rates um, in September. They're engaged in reverse repo to to bail out, you know, Citadel and hedge funds, which we didn't know until later on into the year. But you know, it seems a lot like that same type of setup is occurring, and they see that same evidence, and now they're even acting quicker than they did back in 2018, 2019. Like they're moving more quickly to resolve whatever's happening in the repo, more the reverse repo market. Um, more quickly than they did back in 2019. Right. And just to be clear, the Fed wasn't really trying to protect the hedge funds. They were protecting the banks that have exposure <laughs> to those hedge funds. Yes, I, yes, and, I should. I, I should. Yes. Yes. That, you, and, that's and a good also clarification. Just to be, <laughs> right. Just to be clear, the Fed access, the Fed only has a couple of objectives, and that's maximum employment and price stability. Right. They actually have a third objective, and that's to keep the banks in business. Right. But can we clarify that third objective a little bit more, which is to protect their member banks against I, financial I would, distress? And I would actually clarify it even more. They have one objective <laughs> to protect their member banks. If they can get inflation down and employment to its maximum levels, that's great. But goal number one comes before two and three. Uh, exactly right. Um, so as we get ready to kind of wrap up the show today, be sure and get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, buy your ticket. Uh, Michael Leibowitz will be here live on January the 27th, 8 a.m. to noon. Uh, we're going to be doing some presentations on the bond market, on the election, the stock market outlook for the year. Um, you know, uh, Adam Taggart will be here. Greg Valliere will be here as well to talk about presidential election cycles. Uh, we're going to have a little mixer after the fact, so we'll be able to shake hands and answer any questions you have directly. So get your ticket now online at realinvestmentadvice.com. Just click the banner at the top of the page, get your ticket, and uh, we will love to see you January the 27th at Hotel Sinesta in Houston, Texas. And we'll be back tomorrow with Financial Fitness Friday with Daniel Ratliff and Richard Rosso. See you then.